Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Your main story following a weekend of claims by President Donald Trump that he has the upper hand in a trade war with China. Beijing responding through state media by saying the nation is ready to endure the economic fallout. China is prepared for a protracted war and doesn't fear sacrificing short-term economic interests. That's according to an editorial in the Nationalist Global Times on Sunday evening. Joining me to discuss is Geoffrey Yu, UBS Wealth Management Head of UK Investment Office, and he joins us from London. Good morning to you, Geoffrey. Get me up to speed on where on earth we are with this trade dispute? Uh, well, um, you know, firstly, you know, Global Times uh, you know, probably uh, will uh, have its own, uh, let's just say, you know, readership um, to, uh, uh, to uh, cater to, uh, so I wouldn't put it that far yet. Uh, but at the same time, you're going to see a combination of rhetoric and restraint, you know, as um, uh, what our economists are calling it. Uh, and uh, I think there are plenty of opportunities that China sees as well. I think there was a similar editorial, you know, in the, uh, it was either in the People's Daily or somewhere else, who so noted uh, external pressure is going to be an opportunity for reform in China. And stressing that they need to play the long game as well beyond a US political cycle or even any other economic or business cycle there. So I don't think onshore they're too fussed about it, but the uh, prerogative, uh, but uh, uh, but the um, priority remains to stabilize growth. I think that's what Beijing is looking at right Jeff, now. Jeff, that's a really interesting perspective because for many people, the external pressures are not an incentive to reform domestically. It's perhaps an incentive to step away from those reforms. The big push to deleverage is perhaps um, a little bit too ambitious at this point. Why is it an incentive to reform? Um, I think there are two things there. You know, firstly, you know, China's realised it can't be uh, dependent on um, exports forever. The current account and um, you know, export and value add that's been coming down anyway over um, the uh, last of few years or so. Uh, we've just had the 40th anniversary of reform and opening up. Exports did the job to start off with. Now there's a new growth model that's needed going up the value chain. The second part is, and you know, on the technology side, for example, various Chinese companies have realised how dependent they are on um, overseas um, technology as well as part of their supply chain. So the supply chain story works both ways, right? So now, is this the time for domestic innovation? Now, does this need reform in the education system in terms of how incentives work in China? Those discussions are ongoing right now. They just need to draw the right conclusions. Is it fair to say that we can draw the following conclusion, that it seems to me that the US does have the upper hand in this trade dispute, at least in the short term, mm-hmm. Jeff? Well, it's clear US um, uh, international exposure is far less you know, compared to uh, other major economies around the world. If you just look at you know, overseas earnings uh, in the Dow I mean, versus those in the DAX, FTSE, um, SMI, for example, it's far lower in the US. So I would say the US has less to lose at this point. Um, but again, China probably wants to play the longer game here. It just seems to me, Jeff, that we view China at the moment almost mm-hmm. exclusively through the trade prism when there seems to me there is a lot more going on domestically. Mm-hmm. Just where are we? with the Chinese economy at the moment? And what kind of policy levers are they pulling to address the issues? Um, so two things, really. You know, firstly, um, on the financial side, you just mentioned deleveraging. Um, has the uh, you know downside liquidity and growth impact by extension been stronger, a bit stronger than anticipated? Um, perhaps. So now um, the conditioning is clear now. You know, the PB, uh, so the People's Daily, again, stress, now's the time for leverage stability, you know, rather than deleveraging. It's achieved um, its required results. Uh, so that's the first point. Again, it's not pumping liquidity back into the system, but make sure it's no further tightening of financial conditions. Secondly, if we go back to 2015, 2016, perhaps the 
financial authorities, the fiscal authorities, and the PBOC, the monetary authorities, were not on the same page there. In the end, you know, a lot could have been done, but nothing was done, or very little was done um, uh, uh, in good time. So this time around, it's very clear, coordinated fiscal and uh, monetary response. And that's going to come through, but again, within reason. I think the PBOC is clear keen and the regulators as well not to unwind some of the reforms that have been achieved but on the fiscal side if you look at where the budget deficit is especially on the central level there's a lot more room they can deploy but they're being sparing about it on friday they stepped in the authorities stepped in to stabilize the chinese currency and jeff i'm trying to work out whether the authorities are uncomfortable with the pace of the decline or the overall level of dollar china I think it's always about pace rather than level. And again, we've been above seven before, right? And uh, so in the level, I think it's less of an issue. Pace, you don't want to you know, precipitate, um, you know, these are a, a vicious circle, mass depreciation expectations. Um, but if you look at reserve holdings, and if you look at the fact that between 2016, when we had that major wobble, right, between 2016 and now, uh, they really haven't unwound, you know, capital controls. They were limiting, you know, overseas um, expenditures. Um, I've got in-laws, you know, here right now, and they're probably, you know, not going to be able to buy, you know, 10 <laughs> handbags, you know, in a Selfridges, right? So yep. uh, because of the purchase restrictions. So uh, all of that is in place. Uh, so I think they've got a lot more to control. It's about the level. They don't want to fan depreciation expectations onshore. Jeff, let's talk about your risk asset exposure at the moment and how you put money to work. Five weeks of solid gains on the S&P 500 mm. coming into this week. Um, the trade story is kind of humming away in the background, but for US yeah. assets, I don't see it shaping things too much. Your view on how you put money to work at the moment? Still overweight equities but global equities were not um, particularly overweight any individual market but again it's a case of managing risk it's more turbulence up ahead you want to be decorrelated so still you know have that general risk on exposure uh, but if there are ways um, to actually benefit or limit your drawdowns and that's the message we're giving to clients right now if you know markets are going to suffer from volatility especially any correlated sell-off in bonds and equities as we saw in January then you want to have be it alternatives uh, you know be it through you know off-market assets which could actually you know benefit from that decorrelation so that's our approach at this point one trade haven in the United States was the small caps that position mm-hmm. has unwound mm-hmm. in quite a significant way Jeff mm-hmm. your view on small caps in America mm-hmm. Well, uh, that's actually a less of a focus on the part of our clients, especially outside of the US. Um, we've had more questions about tech, you know, of late, for example, um, yeah. uh, to, to be honest, to give them the sell off. But again, we want to take the medium to longer point, um, uh, a longer term uh, approach here for small caps. You know, if they actually do have the potential to you know, benefit from the domestic stimulus, you actually tend to see a much stronger you know, support for current policies on the part of small and medium uh, sized enterprises. You know, the Paul Donovan, for example, often likes to highlight the uh, NFIB survey, server, for example, I think that's quite well correlated with them small cap sentiment then uh, i think the sentiment um is there and again if they're less exposed you know, to the global trade picture um if you just you know look at the overseas you know, revenues i think for the broader dow jones industrial average about 45 percent for small caps it's going to be lower then they're in a better spot but again we're not really interested in adding to risk at this point it's about managing risk jeff you there great to catch up with you jeff ubs wealth management head of the uk investment office joining us out of london As the sanctions clock is ticking, the first round kicking at midnight tonight on Iran. The next round of sanctions, all important for the oil market, kick in in several months' time. Let's discuss them, shall we? Dan Tannenbaum, PwC principal and global sanctions leader, joins us here in New York. 
Always great to catch up with you, Dan. Good morning to you. Good morning, John. So what do we learn later today? What happens? And then what happens again in three months? Well, so the first tranche of sanctions being reimposed focuses on the reimposition of secondary sanctions. And essentially, broadly speaking, it forces foreign companies to choose between doing business with Iran or doing business with the U.S., but not both. So it criminalizes in the U.S. lens uh, European companies, for example, continuing to do business with Iran with the later phase focusing primarily on oil and gas transactions being wound down in November. So before midnight tonight, how busy have companies in Iran been to secure business and execute on deals before midnight? Well, I mean, let's be clear. This is not a popular move by the United States. This is not something that even many in the U.S. wanted as United States companies got into the market and created transactions uh, with the Iranian space. Now, financial services was largely out of the market and didn't engage, and there were much more limited supply. I don't think there's necessarily going to be a mad rush because this has been out there for months now. Everyone knew this was coming. What's going to be interesting is who's still transacting tomorrow and the rest of the week. There's been talks now in the EU, and I believe a regulation went into effect across the EU member states this week, that is a resurrection of the anti-blocking boycott from 1996 on Cuba, basically telling European companies or companies operating in Europe, you can't comply with the U.S. sanctions on Cuba. They've amended them to include that with Iran. Now, how that looks from an enforcement standpoint, what the U.S. does from an enforcement standpoint, really unclear at this point. And Dan, if you're a European multinational with operations in Iran, do you have the confidence in the regulation that the EU brings forward or do you just err on the side of caution and go with the U.S. sanctions? You err, you err on the side of caution. The 1996 EU anti-blocking statute on Cuba was never enforced. It was never used. It wasn't even universally adopted. Um, this is a little different. Um, this is a bit more of a hot potato issue than Cuba was even 20 plus years ago. That being said, I mean, a number of large insurers, and if you think about kind of how global commerce works, most of the major global insurers have already announced in May that they're backing out of Iran. If you can't insure trade, I mean, what chance does trade have to exist anyway? We're going to talk about the oil market in just a moment, but I want to explore that concept, backing out of Iran. It's it's something a lot of us will say, but I want to know what it actually means, because the sanctions regime over the last few years has always been uncertain, and it's been incredibly fluid, and we've seen it change again. If you're a multinational, let's just say you're a European company with operations on Iran, does backing out mean you stop executing deals with Iran? Does it mean you move offices? Does it mean you move equipment? How does it work logistically, just in terms of operations? Do you maintain a presence there? What do you do? So given the uncertainty when the JCPOA, the Iran deal, was enacted, um, not many companies necessarily established a physical presence, but they did start dealing with Iran, shipping goods and services into Iran, sending people on, on temporary assignments into Iran. It's really elimination of deals, less so about movement of physical resources, I mean, the important thing to note, though, is with all the rhetoric around sanctions this year, this has been the slowest year from an enforcement standpoint in the U.S. that I've ever seen. There's been one enforcement action at the federal level. Usually there's 10 to 15 at this time in the year. So how this looks in terms of the stick versus the kind of speak, it's really unclear what the administration's going to do. So help me make sense of that. Is it not being enforced as heavily in terms of the issues that arise because more people are abiding by some of the rules? Or is it not happening because the U.S. administration isn't actually being that forceful? So it's interesting. These cases that you've historically seen come out take years to get 
adjudicated to settle. So this isn't anything about near-term activity. You could be settling a case in 2018 for activity right. in 2012. So even with a budget increase that Treasury's had in this area for the first time in years, there's still a very slow move on enforcement, despite all of the changes to the different sanctions regimes. So the big question, I think, is in several months' time, for a lot of our listeners who maybe have exposure to the oil market, is what happens in several months' time when that round of sanctions kicks in? The target of this administration, the, the objective overall, I imagine they'd like to see Iranian oil exports drop down to zero. The Chinese are saying they're not going to go with it. How does that work? You know, it would have been simpler if we didn't have the trade spat that was kind of underpinning all of the U.S.-China related issues. That is going to be the real test. China's been very clear that they're going to continue to, to buy oil from Iran, and that doesn't look like it's going to stop. I mean, frankly, you used to have a bit more predictability in the space. Right now, it's a lot harder to tell, but based on all of the different issues that Trump is picking with China, where this could actually land in a few months' time. See, I want to know how the enforcement works, because the Chinese are settling those deals in Yuan. How does the United States not incentivize but prevent the Chinese from wanting to deal with Iran, from, from not cutting back those crude oil imports? There's likely going to need to be some balance, and potentially, who knows, all of the tariffs speak could be the stick that, you know, easing back on that for allowing them to transact yeah. at certain levels of Iranian crude, that could be part of the deal, creating the issue to allow him to come in and create a deal from the Trump administration standpoint. I think what's fascinating about this for a lot of people is this is three months away and we've still got zero clarity on how this is going to work. Um, India, for instance, says we abide by UN sanctions, and now they've got a really nuanced approach, and no one knows what India is going to do. Have you ever seen anything like this, where three months out, we could have a huge sanctions push on a country over oil exports, and we have zero clarity on who's going to do what? Well, I mean, these are somewhat unprecedented times to begin with. And you know, Secretary Liu, as he was leaving, as the Obama administration was ending, spoke about sanctions overuse. We're there. I mean, last week there were sanctions levied against a NATO allies government ministers um, as a result for the kidnapping or the perceived in kidnapping Turkey. of a U.S. pastor in Turkey. I mean, this is not how sanctions have generally been used historically. And then North Korea as well on the radar because it doesn't look like those talks are going as well as um, maybe this administration hoped. Yeah, that, that is not entirely a surprise for those who really watch the space closely that the North Koreans aren't eagerly handing over their nuclear weapons regime. I mean, that being said, North Korea is another interesting one. Unlike Iran, people don't want to do business in North Korea. So all of the focus and making them kind of a the good guy and sharing in uh, kind of global prosperity. I mean, Iran was a very different situation. European companies, global companies have yep. been around for years. No one had been in North Korea. Dan Tanabam, always great to catch up with you and get the insight on what happens next and potentially how companies have got to deal with the new sanctions regime that is implemented once again. The clock is ticking. The first round of sanctions kick out tonight at midnight. The next round on oil kicks in in about three months' time. PwC's principal and global sanctions leader. Great to catch up with you, Dan. Dan Maletti is a managing director, lead portfolio manager for Wells Fargo Asset Management. And uh, she joins us from the lovely state of uh, Wisconsin. Uh, Anne, thank you very much for being here. Happy summer to you. Uh, is, there no, you. is there no worry in your, uh, in your life right now? Do you want something to worry about? Oh, Pim, I have plenty to worry <laughs> about. <laughs> and um, 
And for anyone who really knows me, they know that I am a professional worrier at heart. Um, I spend all of my time worrying. And having a job in this market and dealing with the stock market every day, I think most of us spend a good majority of our time worrying. But you also have to have a lot of conviction and a process and other things to extract the emotion out and to be able to operate every day. Okay. Well, the reason I bring up the concept of worrying is that you've d- described your the current situation is no matter how much time you spend worrying about the market, all you do is experience accelerating growth. Yeah. Well, the the economy is cer- certainly experiencing that accelerating growth. And the market, I know, is forward-looking, and the market also has been going up. And so certainly the market anticipated the economy to be strong. It has been. And even with a lot of fears and challenges that we hear every day in the headlines, the market continues to kind of slowly march higher. And I think that tells us that for the most part, we, you know, the market at least is predicting that the 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 um, stock market will continue and the economy will continue to accelerate from here. And then I think, you know, I know certainly for the last two years, one of the headlines that I see quite often and that I hear about and people challenge me on all the time is the length of this bull market and how long it has lasted. But when you think about the cumulative returns that we've gotten over the last nine plus years, it's actually 25% lower, the cumulative return of this last bull market cycle than it than historic bull market cycles have been. Um, and so, again, you know, history is no certain judge of what's going to happen in the future. But if the headline read that this bull market cycle has produced 25% lower cumulative returns with an accelerating economy, there's a possibility that we might look at things differently. Certainly, the market probably wouldn't act any different. The story would still be the story, but the headlines might be a little different. Right. Well, here, here's a, a just maybe just to put it into a little bit of short-term context. If you look at what the S&P has done since the beginning of May, we've seen an increase of about 9%. So it's worked off all of the turmoil that we experienced from the beginning, let's say from the end of January. Do you, do you think that that's going to continue or is this a, sort of a head fake in a, in a certain way? I, I think that the market strength will continue, but not without volatility. So would I be surprised if we get a correction? No, I wouldn't be. I I wouldn't be surprised at that at all. In fact, as a bottom-up stock picker and a money manager, I would actually welcome, you know, this some volatility to allow us to continue to find names and companies selling at a discount. Um, And that's what we continue to look for in this market. But there's also been some divergence between the names that have really outperformed in this market and names that have truly lagged while their fundamentals continue to improve. And so that's what we're paying attention to because I think the risk reward is what the you know, with what investors should be paying attention to right now and making sure that each investment they make, they try to tip the risk reward into their favor. Well, just to give one example of mm-hmm. a fund that you hold some responsibility over is the Wells Fargo Opportunity Fund, correct? Correct. Yes, okay. Correct. So year to date, you're up nearly 7%. So good on you. That's really up there with the S&P of 500. Uh, when I look at the holdings, 
uh, mm-hmm. Alphabet, E-Trade yep. Financial, Salesforce. Okay, those are pretty well known. But then you start to get to things like Leva Nova and <laughs> yep. Sherwin-Williams and yep. Webster Financial and mm-hmm. Biorad Laboratories. Mm-hmm. Can you offer a guide as to what counts as an opportunity for that fund? Sure, absolutely. I mean, that's exactly, we do have some names that are well known um, in the market, certainly Alphabet, but even that name represents a name that has lagged some of the other FANG names and actually looks more attractive relatively on a valuation base than a name that we can justify. But a name like Livanova, certainly a name in the medical space that we think is, you know, although the stock has performed well, we think it's a name that's been ignored by a lot of the market. And, you know, this is a mid-cap company, you know, around a $6 billion. Pacemakers, defibrillators, heart-lung machines based in the UK, based in London. Right, right. But they have some technology and development that's even more dynamic, technology that will show some good growth, we believe. And this is, you know, a good quality management team showing some great growth. We They have trials that are going on right now that look to expand a lot of their markets as well. So we think this will be a name that a lot of other investors start to pay attention to. We've been in the stock for quite a while, um, and certainly other investors we believe will also find this name attractive. And what's the what's the one what's the ma- one major mistake that you notice investors make over and over again? Oh, certainly buying the things that everybody loves. It's the easiest thing to do. Um, it's easy to buy a name that is going up, um, and that's kind of you know momentum investing. It's another thing when you're buying a name that has some challenges that has not performed in especially in a market like this, right? And so when you're buying a name that hasn't gone up the rest of the with the rest of the market, you're asking yourself what am, what's wrong? Right. That goes and back to your concept of conviction. Exactly. And you have to know and understand the company enough to understand what you're investing in. And so you have to have some kind of investment thesis. Do you know why you're investing in this company? And and so if you understand the reason why, yes, you can be wrong, but you're going to feel better that you understood at least why you did that, right? If, you, if somebody says, hey, invest in the stock because it's going to go up and you put money there, you know, it's already up and you put money there and it goes down a lot and you don't understand it, right. it's going to be bad. So I think it's, that's the worst mistake. we got to leave it there, but I want to thank you very much. Anne Maletti, Managing Director, Lead Portfolio Manager, Wells Fargo Asset Management. Well, the topic is PepsiCo. Indra Nui is stepping down as the chief executive officer of the food and beverage giant. And here to tell us a little bit more about the company and its future prospects is our own Kenneth Shea. He is our Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst for Food and Beverage. Ken Shea, thanks very much for being with us. You know, I was looking at a 10-year chart of PepsiCo versus the S&P 500 plus the S&P 500 consumer staples sector. And it is not a nice picture when you look at PepsiCo. The total return, 125% over the last 10 years, 
but the S&P, 171%, and the subsector, that consumer staples sector, 152%. Is this going to be remembered as a positive time for PepsiCo? Yeah, hi, Pim. Good to be with you again today. Um, you know, PepsiCo's had a, a good run over the years, I mean, in, in a tough space. The consumer staples uh, area has been beset by just you know, tough pricing competition, and consumers are moving to more healthful foods where it's, it's not as easy to make, uh, you know, a, a profit margin as it is to the mass-produced goods that, you know, we're more familiar with. Um, but to her credit, I think, and we should distinguish herself, I think, in the consumer product space is that she made a heavier bet on uh, product innovation and growing internally through organic uh, sales means in, as opposed to the big acquisition that may or may not work out that many of its other peers pursued. Um, so I think it's a, it's, it's a very strong record she had uh, on a total return basis. Again, depending on the, the time you measured over those 10 years, it's uh, pretty competitive with uh, you know, the broad consumer big names. Okay, but even looking at the performance, let's say, of Coca-Cola over that same period of time, uh, Coca-Cola has outperformed Pepsi. It has. Um, and, um, you know, there's a benefit, I, I guess, in, in this uh, study to be concentrated. You know, Coca-Cola has been principally a uh, beverage company. It didn't have the food assets. And there's two ways to look at it. I mean, during some periods when, you know, when uh, – the beverage business became a very tough one, and they go through cycles like other businesses. Uh, PepsiCo could offset that with its uh, food business. Um, in uh, more recent times, though, being a concentrated uh, beverage company seems to um, be the way to go. Uh, having said that, though, uh, and that circles back to PepsiCo, I think one of the first things their new CEO is going to be tackling is the, is the big challenges that its uh, North American beverage uh, division is undergoing. Would an acquisition help? It might. You know, again, the, the concentration on being an eternally generated innovative company uh, may, you know, a critic may say, well, maybe she didn't utilize her balance sheet as much as she could have to make acquisitions, particularly in growthier areas in the developing markets, uh, particularly in Asia. Um, and so you may see a stepped up effort there. What about a split between the beverage side of the business and the food side of the business. Isn't this something that at least was discussed because of the participation of Nelson Peltz and Tryon Fund Management in PepsiCo? That's right. A few years ago, there was a, a big push to to make that separation. You know, Andrew made the case that there are some significant benefits of um, keeping them kept keeping them together, the, the business rationale essentially being, you know, the the size uh, of the company and the scale gives it advantages with procurement, distribution, synergies in, in marketing. Uh, I mean, they both have uh, the direct store delivery routing system, for instance. That's a competitive advantage this company has versus many others who don't. Um, she felt that uh, also reminding consumers that, you know, getting a Pepsi soft drink while you're having a bag of chips may make a lot of sense. And since many do do just that, um, there's some natural synergies there. Having said that, the, the growing gap between the performance of the Frito-Lay division and foods in general and that of North American beverage is now widening to the point that I think it, w it really is prudent to take a look to see if there's a fit, how does it fit? Do they have to own 100% of it or maybe a majority interest to keep control of it? I think all these things are going to be on the table going forward. Ramon LaGuarta, he is the candidate to take over for Indra Nui. What is going to be his biggest challenge? 
Well, again, it's going to be the North American beverages, and he's no um, you know stranger to it. Um, you know, his background is very much international. He understands the role that it can play and the opportunity that's out there. You know, PepsiCo's stance with international has been a very prudent one. It has a lot of joint ventures as opposed to outright, you know, owning uh, some of these developing markets. Uh, so it's taken a prudent stance in that, it, yes, it wants to tap into the long-term growth opportunity that some of these markets have, but at the same time, you know, it, it has to be uh, disciplined with what it's spending to get there. Um, I think, um, you know, over the long haul to grow, though, I think Mr. LaGuardia is going to have to make some quick decisions to say we're going to stick with beverages. We need to make a bet in, uh, in, in a bolder way in terms of how we're going to, how we're going to do that. Much appreciated. Ken Shea, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst for the World of Food and Beverages, uh, talking about the transition at the top of uh, PepsiCo. And here to talk about the transition at the top of PepsiCo, but in another context, I want to bring Jordan Holman, our Bloomberg Managing Diversity Reporter. And Jordan, you know, one of the things that, of course, is striking is that Indra Nooyi is the first, was the first foreign-born chief executive of Pepsi and also the first woman to lead this consumer products company. Uh, does the legacy that Indra Nooyi leave make it easier for women to take their rightful place at the top of these major corporations? That's a really interesting question. Um, she helmed the company for 12 years, and during her time, she was much looked at as you know a strong female leader. But what we're seeing is that a lot of female chief executive officers who stepped down are being replaced by men. So while Pepsi now has um, can now say that they've had a female chief um, officer, we don't they're not, you know, coming up with another one anytime soon. Is it because they haven't yet to develop the talent or is there a natural inclination to always go with what may be perceived as the safe choice, which is to hire a man? I think we're still getting, like as society is still getting over those perceptions of who can lead. Um, we're very much still in the phase of companies having their first female chief officers. So that is still, um, the talent pipeline is there, but filling it with the women who can take over, um, that needs to be more of a push. Well, we noticed, for example, in the aerospace and defense industry that uh, Kathy Warden is scheduled to become the chief executive of uh, Northrop Grumman. Uh, is there something about that industry that uh, ends up tipping the scales towards a, a woman C uh, CEO? I'm not sure if this industry um, is industry specific. I think what you really need at companies are champions who will promote women and who will, you know, make it their mission to make diversity at all levels. For example, Land of Lakes just named a. Uh, openly gay woman as their CEO, Beth Ford. That's still a first to have a woman as an openly gay person. So once we get over the humps of the first, then we can have conversations about just having a level playing field. Right, because I was noting, for example, that Lockheed Martin uh, is uh, run by Marilyn Houston, uh, chief executive of the defense contractor. It, it, as far as uh, the consumer products business is concerned, is there a, uh, uh, a lack of diversity at the top of consumer product companies? We've seen a mix. Um, there's definitely been women CEOs at the top of consumer products. But once again, I don't know if it's more so the company that you're running um, based off of the products that you're selling or the people who are saying, 
you know, I believe in this person, they can help my company. Um, and if you have more women at the bottom of your company who can, who's in your pipeline to raise at the top, then there's a stronger possibility that we'll stop having just the first, we'll just have female CEOs. Indeed. All right. Thanks very much. Uh, Jordan Holman, our uh, Bloomberg Managing Diversity Reporter on changes at the top of PepsiCo. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.